For those of you who were here Tuesday, know that Rare Book School t-shirts and aprons have arrived, and they will be available for sale for anybody who wants one after this lecture in 523, the uh, throne room. $5 for t-shirts and $8 for, I'm sorry, $7 for the aprons. This is the second lecture of the third week of Rare Book School 1987. The next lecture in this series is next Tuesday when Paul Oscar Christeller repeats the lecture that he gave in London this spring on the occasion of his being awarded the gold medal of the Bibliographical Society called In Search of, Man in Search of Renaissance Manuscripts. The title is the same as that of the lecture that Professor Christeller delivered from this podium last year. But the lecture is about 50% new, although there are repetitions, he says. But, he said, there are also digressions. <laughs> and those of you who have heard Professor Costello lecture knows that uh, that's something to look forward to. Our lecture this evening is Professor Milton Gatch, the Provost of Union Theological Seminary, who has been in residence this week at Rare Book School in the Descriptive Bibliography course. And he will be speaking to us tonight on John Bagford. It's a great pleasure to have him here. Thank you, Terry. Um, I should perhaps add at the outset one uh, biographical fact, which is to say that before I came to Union Theological Seminary. I was for uh, 10 years a professor of English at the University of Missouri in Columbia. And uh, it will become evident to you that that is how I got involved in what I'm going to talk about tonight. The Fragmenta Manuscripta collection that was purchased by the Ellis Library of the University of Missouri at Columbia on December, in December of 1968, contained some 217 leaves and fragments, most of them numbered and mounted in guards, that is to say, frames that were cut from the pages of a rather large leather-bound album. The fragmenta that are mounted in that album range in date from the 8th through the 17th centuries, a few of them apparently late additions to an existing collection. The unexpectedly distinguished history of this collection a history that is in many ways a paradigm of the histories of modern British manuscript collecting and of British libraries, is the subject of this lecture. I'm really going to concentrate, however, this evening on the very early history of this manuscript collection. On the verso of the flyleaf of the Missouri album, there is a note written by Sidney Cockrell, who once owned the album that indicates that there is an identically bound volume of printed fragments in the University Library at Cambridge. This album has on its spine the title Fragmenta Varia, and it contains some 464 fragments on 492 pages. Some, mostly title pages of books printed between about 1480 and 1685, are mounted in cutout guards like the Fragmenta Manuscripta, but with framing lines in black ink around the cutouts. Interleaved among the cutout pages are on uncut leaves are of heavy stock paper are also and also I'm sorry on and also on lighter interleaves 
are a profusion of other printed and some manuscript pieces. More title pages, type samples, decorated capitals, decorative bands, illustrations of non-Roman alphabets and writing, and the like, all pasted into the album. The corners of many of the pieces have been damaged by lifting from the pages to which they were previously pasted. There is no doubt that the Cambridge and Missouri volumes originated together, and neither album can in the long run be assessed without reference to the other. But for this evening, I'm going to concentrate almost entirely on the manuscript fragments. My subject this evening is how I identified John Bagford, a bookman in London of the early 18th century, as the collector of these two albums. When I first began the study of the Missouri Fragmenta Manuscripta, the late N.R. Kerr suggested that it might be most likely that the collection was formed by a 19th century librarian who wanted to preserve pieces of manuscript from the bindings of printed books. He referred to Oxford libraries whose collections he had studied, and I went off dutifully to examine those libraries, or to examine those, those uh, collections, and became very quickly convinced that the Missouri collection was not to be associated with 19th century fragment collections. The characteristics of guard books for fragment collections that were made in the beginning of the 19th century derive from the primary aim of those guard books, namely, to preserve from lost materials found in the bindings of early printed books. In the cases surveyed here, the fragment or surveyed that I looked at in, in Oxford, the fragmenta from books in Oxford were mostly taken from books that were bound in Oxford in the uh, uh, 16th century. They often preserve more than one leaf or fragment of a leaf from a given manuscript because binders naturally cut vellum from the same manuscript until they'd used the whole thing up. In most of these albums, there are many pairs of, or larger groups of paste downs from the same manuscript volume taken from the front and back boards of the binding of a single printed book. W.A. Panton even preserved a number of bifolia, presumably which were, which were presumably used as pasteboard pads in the bindings of books that can be really reconstructed as whole manuscript gatherings. Sometimes later materials were stuck into the guard books, apparently for want of a better place to preserve them. But in general, printed fragmenta played no part in the rationale of these collections. Although the Missouri Fragmenta Manuscriptor album preserved several pairs of fragments from the same manuscript, the collection does not in any way resemble a 19th century guard book. The more than 200 pieces in the album were written over a very long period. And although the pieces collected survey the medieval book, and especially the English medieval book, a number of the fragmenta at the end of the volume do not really appear to fit the category of medieval manuscript, being from the 17th century. Leafing through the collection, one has the sense that it was formed by a person who was attempting to gather an illustrative and representative sampling of medieval manuscript pieces, of hands, of decoration, of types of book, and at the end of new materials and new kinds of calligraphy. Thus, although the argument that this scrapbook might most likely have been a guard book of the mid-19th century seemed initially to have some weight, and although the mountings and the binding of the collection when it came to Missouri are without doubt products of the mid-19th century, the fact is that the collection is not a typical 19th century guard book. 
If one recalls that the Fragmenta Manuscripta album was originally part of the set with the Cambridge Fragmenta Varia, this conclusion is only the stronger. The two-volume collection seems to survey not only the medieval history of the book, but, the, but also the history of writing and printing in books from the early Middle Ages to the end of the 17th century. The catalog of the book dealer from whom the Library of the University of Missouri-Columbia purchased the Fragmenta states that Thomas Tennyson, who was Archbishop of Canterbury from 1695 to his death in 1715, began the collection. The keeper of the volume in Archbishop Tennyson's library in the parish of St. Martin's in the field in the 1850s also believed that Tennyson made the collection. Although it is, of course, possible that the collection was made in the intervening period, roughly 1700 to 1850, it seemed most plausible to look for the originator of the Fragmenta Manuscripta and the Fragmenta Varia among collectors of scraps from manuscripts and printed books in London in the early seven, late 17th and early 18th centuries. This quest led to a remarkable group of professional and amateur antiquaries and bibliophiles, among whom Humphrey Wanley, one of the most remarkable paleographers and catalogers of libraries of the age, was central. Although doubtless many other persons saved membra disjecta or even snipped fragments from manuscripts in the 17th and 18th centuries, the Wanley Circle provides the best milieu in which to understand our fragmenta and to seek their collector. Humphrey Wanley, whose dates are 1672 to 1726, was born in Coventry, the son of a clergyman who died when Wanley was only about eight. Wanley was apprenticed to a woolen draper, but he seems almost ineluctably to have been drawn to antiquarian studies. He came to the attention of the Bishop of Lichfield in Coventry, William Lloyd, and of others, and arrangements were made in 1695 for his, him to study at Oxford. After a short visit, indeed, to Oxford in 1692, and perhaps another in 1694, Wanley seems already to have been regarded as something of a marvel. For Dr. Arthur Charlotte, the Master of University College, added a note about Wanley in a letter to the new Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Tennyson, in 1960, or 1694. Charlotte was seeking Tennyson's assistance in having a catalog made of the manuscripts in the library at Lincoln Cathedral, either to assure Tennyson of the validity of the catalog project or to acquaint him with the newly discovered wunderkind of paleography. Charlotte added to postscript to his letter. I hope my Lord Bishop of Litchfield will find some way to redeem from his apprenticeship that laborious young man of Coventry, Wanley, from a shop. Your Grace may guess his extraordinary genius by a part I now send, uh, send to you of the Warwick catalog compiled by him. Well, Wanley was redeemed by Lloyd from his apprenticeship, and he matriculated at St. Edmund Hall in Oxford. Apparently unwilling to submit to the prescribed curriculum, however, he soon found a place on the staff of the Bodleian, or as it was then called, the Public Library of Oxford, by early 1696, and he lived with Dr. Charlotte in the Master's Lodge at University College. At St. Edmund, he had been associated with the principal, John Mill, in manuscript studies. At the Bodleian, he worked under the chief librarian, Thomas Hyde, who was also a professor of Greek, Hebrew, and Arabic. Other associates included a number of persons involved both in antiquarian studies and the study of Anglo-Saxon, two of whom will be mentioned further in this lecture, Edmund Gibson, the first editor of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, 
at this time soon to become librarian to Archbishop Tennyson at Lambeth Palace. Uh, uh, Gibson later became Bishop of London. And second, George Hicks, whose study of grammar helped significantly to spark the new Anglo-Saxon studies and to whose great book on the northern languages of Europe, Wanley contributed an important catalog of Anglo-Saxon manuscripts. In 1700, Wanley moved up to London, and he was associated from 1708 with Robert Harley, the first Earl of Oxford, and his great library. He remained in the service of Harley and his son Edward to the end of his life in 1726. As cataloger and keeper of the Harleian library, he was in no small part responsible for forming the magnificent collection, the manuscripts from which, combined with the library assembled by Sir Robert Cotton in the 17th century and the collection of Sir Hans Sloane, a contemporary of Wanley's, the physician and secretary to the Royal Society, the manuscripts of which were to form the nucleus of the library of the British Museum when it was established in 1753. From his earliest days at Oxford, Wanley was interested in improving resources for manuscript study. He had criticized the usefulness of the large comparative chart of alphabets that had been published by Dr. Edward Bernard, coordinator of the catalog of manuscripts in British and Irish libraries. In a note dated um, in 1697, he recorded that the, English, that the Oxford Anglo-Saxonist William Elstub had told him that if he were going to criticize Bernard, he himself would have to be prepared to produce a better research tool. The result was what was called the Book of Hands, never published and since lost, on which Wanley worked until at least 1699. He seems to have had principally in mind for this work sample alphabets put into a small and portable book which may be easily carried along on a journey or into a library. And he set it out as his editorial principle that specimen alphabets ought, wherever possible, to be taken down directly from manuscript by expert engravers. By August of 1697, Wanley had proceeded far enough with this project that Dr. Charlotte wrote to him from London to send the book of specimens so that it might be shown to the Lord Chancellor, Lord Summers, who was also a considerable antiquarian and bibliophile. The volume arrived too late to be shown to Summers. However, Charlotte, uh, probably showed it also to Samuel Pepys and certainly displayed it in October to Archbishop Tennyson, who was again impressed by the young man's skill. Charlotte doubtless hoped to find supporters for the publication of the book. He failed at Lambeth, however. Indeed, Edmund Gibson, Edmund Gibson uh, Tennyson's librarian, had already written Charlotte the preceding spring that although my lord is very much pleased with the finery and exactness of Mr. Wanley's alphabet, no support could be provided for its publication. To aid in presenting the project to potential patrons in London, Wanley had written Charlotte a letter concerning the rationale of his book of hands. It contained, he said, the capital letters of a number of alphabets gathered promiscuously at the beginning, followed by engraved specimens cut or copied from Mabillon's De Re Diplomatica, the great authority on manuscript. Wanley then apparently copied other engraved specimens, and finally he set himself to copying from an original manuscript of the Gospels in the library of John Moore, the Bishop of Norwich. The rest of the specimens were from Oxford manuscripts. Wanley takes care, he says, to take his specimen alphabets, alphabets from datable manuscripts. The collection will be useful, it is concluded, both for comparison and for assistance in dating manuscripts and as an aid for learning paleography. If this argument does not satisfy his critics, Wanley maintains widely that his occasional writing and specimen, er, labor in specimen gathering 
is an innocent recreation. The next folio of the album in which this letter is now preserved is a set of notes on the need for a book on libraries and their resources, on the need of assistance in a gathering specimens, and on the evidentiary importance of coins, medals, and inscriptions for the study of alphabets. A third folio contains a list of persons who have expressed support in writing for Wanley's scheme. Save as it provides materials for the plates and the discussions of letters and hands in George Hicks's thesaurus, little survives of Wanley's specimens of alphabets. It had great celebrity as a work in progress in its own time, however, and as Kenneth Sizem observed, Wanley's contemporaries clearly expected him to produce a new English Mabillon. Not only did Charlotte take it to London for display, but Hicks, when Wanley was about to leave Cambridge for research on the catalog of Anglo-Saxon manuscripts in 1699, advised him to take the Book of Hands with him and show it to scholars he met. Wanley's book of specimen facsimiles of manuscript hands and alphabets is of interest because it sets the context in which Wanley spoke about the potential value of collecting manuscript fragments and leaves from the bindings of books. There survives an undated memorandum, probably written between Charlotte's visit to London in 1697 and sometime in 1699, in which Wanley petitioned the Vice-Chancellor of Oxford and the curator of the Bodleian for permission to remove fragments from the bindings of volumes in the Bodleian Library. This audacious memorandum opens with an account of the use of manuscript fragmenta as paste-downs in bindings. Such pieces have no relation to the subject matter, a subject or matter of the books they belong to, and their excision would in no way detract from the value of books in which they are bound. But the fragmenta used as paste-downs could be used as specimens for dating and analyzing other manuscripts. And Wanley proposes that he be allowed to remove such useless fragments of parchment and paper as he shall find necessary to his purpose, if it may be done, so, be done without damage to the books. He intends to arrange these gleanings chronologically and by country of origin to form a handbook of paleography. When he no longer requires the handbook, he promises he will return it to the curators of the Bodleian. Of central importance in this petition are the notions that the scheme would render worthless fragmenta useful, and that by so doing, a range of samples would be provided that would surpass the holdings of any single library's collection of complete manuscripts. In these regards, Wanley's scheme for a collection of the Bodleian Fragmenta Manuscripta or the Bodleian Fragmenta, anticipates the 20th century librarian's understanding of Fragmenta as a useful resource for, research for teaching, resource for teaching. Wanley's interest is even more diverse, however. He and some of his associates were also aware of the value of Fragmenta to provide evidence not only of hands, but also for the history of the use of parchment, paper, and ink. Although the autograph copy of this memorandum bears approving endorsements by two of the curators of the Bodleian, there is no record that the scheme was put into effect. Study of collections of fragmenta made by contemporaries and associates of Wanley shows that, in one respect at least, Wanley was typical, and that antiquarian collections from his period tend to share a common characteristic. Fragment collections made by antiquarian scholars and amateurs in the early 18th century tended to document a thesis or to have some unifying purpose. The earliest and by all means the most elegant assemblage of fragmenta by an acquaintance of Wanley's is a small collection placed at the beginning of Samuel Pepys's calligraphical collection, which is now preserved in three very large folio volumes with the rest of his library in the original book presses at Magdalen College, Cambridge. Uh, 
Wanley had made Pepys's acquaintance by April of 1695 before his arrival in Oxford. In 1699, uh, Pepys wrote to Wanley inquiring, among other matters, about a group of manuscript fragments on parchment, which he wanted Wanley to identify and date. Incidentally, the uh, original of that letter has uh, recently come into the possession of the Pierpont Morgan Library, but it's been in print for several hundred years. Wanley applauded Pepys's interest in his pieces of parchment and reflected that he himself had a similar collection that he hoped to organize in a book according to their age and country wherein they were written. His own portable reference collection, Wanley believes, will be very useful as he goes about visiting libraries. He also told Pepys about another collection he owned, two volumes of paper specimens, the first of which contained ordinary English papers, papers from the Orient, marbled papers, and the second of which contained white European paper organized according to watermarks. I think Terry comes closest to, uh, in our time, to having a collection like... Uh, <laughs> Uh-huh. Oh, from the, from the, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Like the collection of manuscript fragments, the scrapbook of paper samples was assembled for utility and reference, not simply for display. He offered to send his collection down to London for Pepys to examine, uh, should he be interested. Finally, Wanley got about his assigned task of describing and dating the fragments Pepys had sent him excusing himself as being out of practice and protesting that it was difficult to date and identify manuscripts when one has only a leaf or piece of a leaf to judge by. He referred to Mabillon as the great authority. Pepys used the fragments, as we have said, at the beginning of his three-volume calligraphical collection and had Wanley's comments copied on the pages to which he pasted his fragments. He didn't follow Wanley's suggestion that the pieces be assembled chronologically and by place of origin, Indeed, he placed near the end two binding strips in uncials and half-uncials that Wanley identified as very early, from about one from about 679, the other at least as old as the Lindisfarne Gospels. Admiring his consultant's perspicacity, Pepys added uh, on these two pieces that they had been given to him by my most honored and reverend friends, the dean and chapter of Durham. Pepys intended his collection of fragments at the beginning of volume one of the calligraphical collection only to introduce the thesis of the entire collection, the art of handwriting, which had reached a high level of sophistication in the Middle Ages, was undermined by printing, as witnessed the hands from the period of Henry VII through Elizabeth. Pepys, of course, had a terrible hand himself. It's pretentious but awful. But with the invention of copperplate engraving in the 17th century, it became possible to reproduce elegant hands. And there was a great revival of the art of writing to which the collection of engraved calligraphic specimens that formed the body of the material in the albums was witness. Pepys followed this statement on pages 12 to 15 of the first volume with a group of mixed fragments, some printed and, most, and some mostly very badly stained binding pieces. On page 19, an interesting medieval copy book of, in five leaves was mounted, and around it were arranged a number of initials from manuscripts. The rest of Pepys's album was devoted, as has been indicated, to examples of 17th century engraved calligraphy arranged by countries, elaborately indexed geographically and chronologically in tables reproduced at the front of each of the volumes. 
If Pepys and Wanley did not have the same ends in mind for fragment collection, they did at least both have theses about the ends that a collection of specimens might serve. Wanley did not mention printing prominently in his letter to Pepys, but he did evince an interest in paper as the material used in books in an age of printing and in the means, the watermarks, of identifying and classifying papers. And Pepys, in organizing his calligraphic samples, organized his specimens as Wanley had suggested one might organize manuscript pieces by age and country of origin. For neither Wanley nor Pepys would the retention of numerous duplicate pieces from the same codex or book have served any purpose. When Wanley wrote to Pepys about his Fragmenta Manuscripta and confessed that he too was a collector of binding pieces, he assumed that both he and Pepys got their fragments from the same source. As to the pieces of parchment, I suppose, sir, that you had them of Mr. Bagford, from whom I likewise have received some hundreds of such pieces and leaves written at different times and in different places. Indeed, the paper collection that Wanley spoke of in the same letter was made chiefly by the help of the same Mr. Bagford when I was last in London. John Bagford was an eccentric and colorful man, fanatical in his pursuit of scraps of parchment and paper. He was important in bibliophilic circles in London between about 1690 and 1716. Because of his services as a procurer of books for a number of the most important collectors, among them John Moore, the Bishop of Norwich and later of Ely, Peter Leneve, Samuel Pepys, Wanley's employer Robert Harley, the first Earl of Oxford, and his son Edward, the second Earl. Wanley, whose correspondence with Bagford dates from his arrival in Oxford in 1685 and continued to Bagford's death in 1716, seems to have been genuinely fond of John Bagford. Wanley was on occasion puzzled by the meaning of packages of antique objects sent him by Bagford, but he was not unwilling to serve from time to time as Bagford's agent in the sale of books in Oxford. He dated fragments for Bagford, once begging him to keep the date secret, for I may hereafter have seen more such thing and have had longer conversation with them and be able to judge more nicely. He could be embarrassed by Bagford as well. Thomas Smith, the librarian of the Cotton Collection, wrote after Bagford had come to Cotton House on an errand for Wanley, I am ready and willing to oblige any ingenious artist or bookseller, as well as professed scholar and gentleman, with the sight of any curiosity as far as I may or can. But, however, I pray for the future use care and caution in recommendations. Wanley found it necessary at least once to write firmly to Bagford about the necessity of executing commissions from, for uh, Hardly, Harley promptly and properly. But in this and other letters of the later years, he signed himself your loving friend and servant. He put a note in a Bagford album where Bagford had copied out a catalog of Wanley's collection of primers, psalters, prayer books, homilies, and testaments. Uh, as follows, unskillfully and imperfectly taken without my consent from my papers which Mr. Bagford borrowed of me. Another antiquarian of the time, Thomas Hearn of Oxford, who was not an admirer of Wanley, concurred in Wanley's estimate of Bagford as an ad a remarkable collector of bibliographical and antiquarian information, though limited by a lack of formal education in his ability to communicate his knowledge. He was, Hearn believed, certainly the greatest man in his way, that I ever yet heard of. Born in London in the 1650s, John Bagford is reputed to have been a shoemaker early in his life. By the early 1690s, when Wanley made his acquaintance, however, he was a collector of books on commission for booksellers and amateurs. 
His clientele was both the most distinguished and the most discriminating in London at the turn of the 17th and 18th centuries. He and Wanley with John Tolman were the original members of the Reconstituted Society of Antiquaries in 1707. They were later joined by Peter Leneve. Bagford's antiquarian interests ranged beyond the merely bibliophilic, and he was invited by Hearn to contribute a piece on London antiquities due to a new edition of Leland's Collectinea. Bagford's great scholarly passion, however, was the history of the book, in particular the printed book, and it was to document this study that he devoted his personal energies as a collector of fragments. At his death on 15 May 1716, Bagford left an enormous collection of fragments from manuscripts and printed books. There seems to have been competition among antiquarians and booksellers to acquire his holdings, but ultimately they came into the possession of Edward Lord Harley. Harley's purchase by no means included everything that Bagford had assembled during his lifetime, but it did comprise what Bagford had retained at the end of his life as the basis for his projected history of printing. As the competition for his papers demonstrates, Bagford was held in some esteem by his contemporaries despite his want of education. Thomas Rawlinson wrote an epitaph for him in Latin, which Bagford probably didn't know, calling him the complete British antiquarian, who was always at the service of others, always simple and without pretense. Harley, writing to inform Hearn that he had bought the papers, called him Honest John Bagford, and the tag Honest thereafter often appeared when Bagford was mentioned in Hearn's letters and diaries. Since his own time, Bagford has not been so highly respected, partly because the rationale for his collections was not adequately appreciated, but also because his methods of collection, collecting title pages and manuscript fragments were suspect. He was derided as a wicked old biblioclast who went about the country from library to library, tearing away title pages from books of all sizes, and as the most hungry and rapacious of all book and print collectors. More recent commentators have allowed for the possibility that Bagford got all or most of his manuscript and printed fragments from already damaged volumes and cast-offs, and without seeing his gifts quite so extravagantly as Hearn did, have presented a more tempered evaluation of his work. Bagford's own testimony, I think, tends to exonerate him from the charge of biblioclasm. He speaks of his involvement in all the major sales of books in London from 1686 onward as having given him unparalleled access to bibliographical information at first hand. Moreover, his friend, the bookseller Christopher Bateman, had given Bagford free access to his own stocks, and I quote Bagford, he always gave me notice when he had any waste books and to, to sell, and freely gave me liberty to take out of them what I thought fit, as the blank leaves at the beginning of them for paper samples, and old pieces of manuscripts, titles, frontispieces, borders, printers, devices, and by this civility, I've, ad, uh, I've added very much to my collection, which I've put together in 20 volumes, folio, quarto, and octavo, so that I am enabled to show the titles of several hundreds of books printed in Holland, Germany, Italy, France, Spain, Flanders, and England and I'm apt to think no one in Europe hath the like collection. It seems unlikely that as a businessman, Bagford would have destroyed the commercial value of volumes he was selling, although it does seem likely that he occasionally retained folia that had become detached from books and manuscripts that passed through his hands. Bagford's collections are now in the British Library Harley Collection. Uh, and. Uh, uh, this vast assemblage of scrapbooks and manuscript notes and letters is now very difficult to study or to imagine in its original state. 
much of it was rebound in the 19th or the present century. All the printed pieces, not only from the Harley collection of Bagford, but also from some uh, uh, albums that Dr. Sloan owned, uh, were removed from the manuscript department of the British Museum about 1890 to the pr Department of Printed Books. The two departments were fighting over various things, and, and Bagford's printed stuff was part of the, the uh, diplomatic solution. Uh, and at various times, other items were transferred to the Department of Prints and Drawings, where their provenance in the Bagford collections was evidently not recorded. Nevertheless, one can partly reconstruct several of the albums that originally contained both manuscript and printed matter, and these resembled the collection of Fragmenta Manuscripta and Varia, now at Missouri and Cambridge. Um, one of the most useful ways to get into uh, the nature of the Bagford collections is probably um, to quote a little bit from an account of Bagford's collection that was published by Humphrey Wanley in the transactions, the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society. His collections consist chiefly of title pages and other fragments put together into books, many of them in some sort of order and method, and others not. For example, in one volume there are specimens of letters of all sorts, as well as those, as those used in foreign countries as in England. In others are titles and fragments of almanacs from A.D. 1537 downwards, titles of Bibles, law books printed by the Company of Stationers in London, and uh, so forth and so on, uh, just all kinds of things, uh, uh, cuts of monuments, tombs, funerals, um, um, uh, cuts of figures in different uh, postures, especially of, of writing figures, um, and thousands of, of title pages. Um, The, um, uh, Wanley concludes, um, these title pages of books are really very useful upon many accounts as being authentic and exact, uh, when in most catalogs the titles are abbreviated and otherwise imperfect. We've been learning how to do that this afternoon in, in my group, um, um, and so forth. Well. If Wanley gives a sense of the stupefying scope of Bagford's collection and his ambition to work up the history of printing, he gives little insight into the methodology of the proposed work. And for this, one has got to turn to Bagford's own proposals for printing an historical count of that most universally celebrated as well as useful art of typography, which was published in 1707. Bagford claims in the proposals that he is going to print in a folio volume of about 200 sheets or 400 pages, a history of the development of printing from early woodblocks to the invention of movable type, an account of the relationship of this history to illumination and the development of engraving, a dissertation on the history of paper and papermakers' marks, a subject never touched upon before, a catalog of books printed from 1457 to 1500, and so forth. Incoherent and grandiose though this prospectus seems, the albums show that Wanley and Hearn also, and as Wanley and Hearn also testify, that Bagford had arranged many of his albums in rough correspondence to these topics. Appended to the proposals is Brief Life of Caxton with a list of the books he published. Probably Bagford's intended method for the uh, portion of the book work devoted to the development of English pre pre printing was to prevent, present sketches of the major printers with bibliographies based on the collected title pages in the manner of his sample treatment of Caxton's life and work. If this now seems a cumbersome procedure and a hit or miss one given the undoubted gaps in the collection and its state of disorganization, 
It may be recalled that Hearn seemed to feel that the job could be done with Bagford's resources. In fact, the first major treatment of the main subject Bagford had in view, Joseph Ames's typographical antiquities, or the history of printing in England, Scotland, and Ireland, containing memoirs of our ancient printers and a register of the books printed by them, which was published in 1749, followed precisely Bagford's methodology. Bagford's collections contain much manuscript material. Since he preserved copies of Wanley's memorandum requesting permission to remove material from bindings in the Bodleian Library, and of Wanley's letter to Dr. Charlotte explaining his need for specimens of writing, we may assume that he shared Wanley's rationale for the innocent recreation of casting a very wide net to gather such materials and making useless scraps serve as useful evidence for the history of the book and of writing. Furthermore, Bagford believed that the roots of Western printing were not to be traced from the Orient, as some had said, but in Europe. The forms taken by the printed book and the types used in it were derived from ancient carved inscription from the manuscript books, the very forms of the letters in which became so standardized as to pro provide models for the earliest type fonts, and from block printing. If then, Wanley's collection of Membra Disiecta was a portable paleographer's reference handbook, and Pepys's an illustration of the precursors of late 17th century calligraphy, Bagford's can be expected to have illustrated the history of the book, in particular of hands and designs that both presaged and influenced early printers and the materials that were used by the makers of books, printed and manuscript. Bagford's descriptions of some of his collections in his several catalogs of his books confirm this rationale for his fragment collections. Uh, one, for example, is described as follows. A large volume in blue paper with a variety of ancient specimens of writing on vellum and parchment and paper wrote in Italy, German, France, Flanders, and England from the beginning of the 10th century to the 15th, adorned with a variety of cuts in both wood and copper at the beginning of the book, which exhibited the postures, which in, uh, which the, the postures in which the ancients sat when they wrote. Several volumes in the British Library Bagford collections illustrate these premises and are very strongly reminiscent of the Missouri Fragmenta Manuscripta and the Cambridge Fragmenta Varia. There's not time to survey all of, of Bagford's medieval manuscript holdings, but two collections that belong to Dr. Hans Sloan will suffice as examples. The first of these, Sloan Manuscript 1044, might well have been the volume of which Bagford's description has already been quoted. It is a large volume, which at one time contained some 640 pieces before the printed samples were removed. Some of the manuscript fragments are tipped to the mounting pages with rather elaborate hinges of vellum with cloth reinforcements. Other are mounted in cut-out frames. Um, but some of this may be a, a, a feature of rebinding. Almost all the manuscript pieces, a number of which are binding strips, show signs of having been pasted in bindings. Musical notation is not neglected, and there are some quite early decorated uh, and illuminated leaves. The faces in one or two of these uh, paintings have been obscured by overpainting in a manner reminiscent of damage to several paintings in the Missouri volume. There are, however, several groups of more than two pieces from the same original volume. There are a number of tracings of watermarks, printer's devices, title pages, some of which are incomplete proofs, and one of which is drawn uh, is a drawn mock-up of the title page of a work on Persian religion, language, and writing. Uh, a series of emblems for silence, all of which depict readers in libraries. 
alphabet, a series of engraved facsimiles from Hyksis thesaurus. Samples of printing on vellum include both musical pages from liturgical books and a leaf from the Gutenberg Bible, which Bagford presumably did not recognize as such. At the end of the volume, as it is presently arranged, there are some notes and a book list and a copy of the proposals for the projected history of printing. The second of ba the Bagford albums in the Sloan collection, with the spine title Specimens of Old Writing, is a smaller volume. It had only 14 printed fragments at the time of the removal of the printed matter in 1890. Sloan 1086 seems not to have been rearranged by the British Museum staff, and although it has probably been rebound, its contents appear to be mounted on the original leaves. There are abundant traces of early removal of former pieces, especially printed from the album, perhaps by Bagford himself for other uses. The intention of Sloan 1086 as a collection is to illustrate a great range of book hands. The fragments are crowded onto the pages, and although it is less pleasing aesthetically than the remounted collections, it may give a better impression than most of the other albums of what Bagford's collections looked like when they left his hands. It may be that Bagford arranged manuscript fragments according to the visual associations rather that they had for him rather than dates, and printed and manuscript materials were sometimes mounted on the same folios, probably for comparative purposes. It should be clear by now that the Missouri and Cambridge fragment manuscripts and printed manuscripts seem closest in spirit and character to the collections of antiquaries in the Wanley Circle in the period 1695 to 1710, and especially to the collections of John Bagford. Strong though the circumstantial evidence seems to be, it is almost certainly verified by a comment of Bagford in 1707 at the end of an essay on the invention of printing which is printed in the uh, Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society. Like most of Bagford's writing, this essay is not entirely coherent. It develops his thesis that, uh, about the sources of printing. Near the end, the author gives a list of books he needs to see in order to complete his research, and he speaks of his projected history, the proposals for which are probably roughly contemporary with this essay. Finally, he concludes with this announcement. The specimens of ancient pieces of manuscripts and also of ancient papers collected by myself some years since and bound up in two volumes in large folio are now to be seen in the library of His Grace the Archbishop of Canterbury and St. Martin's, collected and put together at no small cost and pains, perhaps the first of that kind ever done in Europe. Another apparent reference to the Fragmenta albums is <clears throat> a marginal addition to a letter to Dr. Sloan in which Bagford is speaking of his collections. The first that I collected of specimens of paper and of old and new of writings on vellum and parchment in two large volumes in folio is now in the library of His Grace the Archbishop of Canterbury at St. Martin's in the field, collected and put together with no small pains and charge to me. There are at least two rather puzzling aspects to these statements. For one, the reference to ancient paper in the printed version seems not to fit the Missouri-Cambridge collection in its present state. The two albums do contain an adequate sampling of the materials on which writing and printing are preserved, however, and no one can ever suspect, expect clarity of Bagford's written efforts. Furthermore, the assertion that these volumes were, uh, form the first collection of any kind that was of, of that kind that was ever done in any part of Europe seems odd too in the light of Bagford's knowledge of Wanley's, Pepys's, and other collections. He may mean that his work on collecting this group of fragments some years since 
antedated the formation of the collections of Wanley, Pepys, and others. This is a reasonable suggestion in the light of the evidence that Bagford was the main market source for these sources, sorts of materials, and it suggests that the date of the Fragmenta Manuscripta and Varia, first dated in the essay of 1707, is as early as 1695, or shortly before Wanley's first reference to his own activities as a collector of fragments. On the other hand, Bankford may only mean that the rationale for his collection, which contains not only manuscript but also printed fragments, is different from the rationales of other assemblages. At any rate, the claim for the antiquity and even the priority of the collection now divided between Missouri and Cambridge cannot be far wide of the mark. Since the Fragmata Manuscripta and Fragmata Varia remained in the Tennyson Library uncatalogued and largely unnoticed until 1861, however, it is important to notice that some of the materials in them can be collect, connected with, with Bagford. There are circumstantial connections with the collection, or connections with the collections of Samuel Pepys and Bishop Moore. Fragmata Manuscripta number 177 comes from a manuscript of Peter Idley's uh, English instructions to his sons that had been in, has been in Pepys's collection since before 1700. In light of Bagford's role as a purveyor of books to Pepys, it is reasonable to assume that the leaf came into Bagford's collection when the entire volume was in his hands. The same must be the case of number 46, which originally belonged, followed the last extant fo folio of a much damaged Psalter in the Bishop of, in the Library of Bishop Moore of Ely, another customer of Bagford's. That's now in the Cambridge University Library. More conclusive is the overlapping between Fragmata Manuscripta and the Sloan um, uh, Bagford album, uh, Manuscript Sloan 1086. Four items in the Missouri collection are from the same manuscripts as four items in Sloan 1086. This suggests that the Sloan album may have been collected about the same time as the Fragmata Manuscripta and deposited in the Tennyson Library. When the Fragmata Varia have been studied closely, further correspondence may come to light. It can be stated now, however, as David McKitterick has shown, that a number of the type samples from Holland in the Cambridge album are very similar to samples elsewhere in the, in the uh, uh, collections of Bagford's collections of printed matter. There remains only the question why Bagford chose to deposit his two folios of fragments in Archbishop Tennyson's library. And on this subject, there can be no firm answer. The early manuscript notes for Bagford's list of London libraries contained no reference to the Tennyson Library. But when Bagford published a guide to London libraries for foreigners and others in 1708, he had laudatory comments to make on the library and its furnishings. One presumes it had come to his attention only shortly before the essay on the invention of printing was published in 1707, and perhaps he felt as did its founder that the St. Martin's Library was the most accessible public institution of its kind in London. That Bagford had personal contact with Tennyson cannot be doc documented, although he would surely have liked to attract Tennyson's attention both as a buyer of books and as a potential patron of the project on the history of printing. Bagford did know Edmund Gibson, Tennyson's chaplain and librarian at Lambeth Palace, who had some contact with the St. Martin's Library, and served at times as a lecturer in that parish. And it is possible that his contact with this eminent antiquarian led to the deposit of the Bagford collection in the Tennyson Library. In any case, John Bagford's collection, the first of that kind that was ever done in any part of Europe, was to remain in the Tennyson Library for a century and a half 
and has only now been identified as backwards. When I first began to teach descriptive bi bibliography at this school in the fall of 1971, I was first lent and then presented by Alan Hazen with a package of materials that he used for teaching descriptive bibliography, which included a leaf printed by Winkin de Word with the uh, Tate watermark, a fool's cap watermark, a unicorn watermark, and several others that practically all of you have seen this week. Hazen acquired them out of one of the Tennyson volume collections. And since they were the first teaching aids developed, at least in my tenure at the library school, for the teaching of descriptive bibliography, it seems to me that shows a perfectly remarkable connection straight back to the earliest sources for doing the kind of uh, pillaging that we are institutionalizing uh, in a major sort of way. I hope you will now adjourn with the speaker and me to the lounge where you can congratulate him and uh, comment on our activities as you see fit to me. <laughs>